Welcome to Hunger for Wholeness, a podcast from the Center for Christogenesis. I'm your host, Robert Nicastro. You're listening to the second half of Elia's conversation with historian and religious scholar Diana Butler Bass. We jump back in with Elia and Diana discussing the outlook of Silicon Valley, Teilhard's scientific vision, and the enlightenment that comes from research and discovery. It was interesting that Elon Musk recently did sign a letter warning about some of the dangers of AI. A fellow that I actually know and am friends with was one of the main crafters of that letter. And his concern is essentially that we've created something that we can't control. It's like the Frankenstein thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very much so. And um, to hear my friend and other people that he's associated with in that world begin to sort of sound that alarm, I think is an interesting moment. And it raises the question of, well, what do you do? You know, because now we've got the thing and we've, we've got a lots of interesting new technologies. The same place where I met uh, many of these Silicon Valley people was also where I happened to be having dinner with a group of them. And I was sitting next to a guy who invented the vaccine for skin cancer that is now just coming to the fore and people are just hearing about it. Uh, but literally, I'm sitting at dinner, we're having a conversation, and this older gentleman who is a research doctor, and I said, well, you know, what's your latest project? And he said, oh, we're about to cure cancer. <laughs> just said, oh, I read a Substack newsletter about religion. <laughs> And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting next to a guy who's curing cancer. And so he started telling me, you know, what was involved in the path of research and the whole story of discovery and his journey and his passion to do all this and where it's brought cancer cure. And he literally said at dinner, you know, in terms of several cancers, we're now at an 80 to 90% cure rate. Mm. So that's one of the things. The way you describe that, that's a very Teilhardian way of speaking about spirituality. But Teilhard, believe it or not, I'm not surprised. <laughs> as adoration and research as the spirituality for today. In other words, we think God is something, you know, that's already formed and present and watching over us. And, you know, it's all lovely. But for Teilhard, it's the idea of the mind, you know, is discovering and these insights and, and the, the new holes that are being made. And it's a godliness. This is the power of the human person. We have this incredible capacity of the mind to actually understand, you know, study these diseases and then find cures for them. So it's not just understanding them. We can find a cure, like how to make this better. That's godlike power, you know. And that's what we're saying, like, if we can understand that power and use it in the right way, God begins to emerge through our scientific endeavors, our technological endeavors, our, you know, and we don't realize, but because we don't put two and two together here, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm God without God, you know, like, and so it's like being godly without religion is, could be a dangerous thing. That's, that's like a new pathogen of some sort. But, you know, being God with God is really a cool thing. It could really make the earth a better place. Maybe this is the same conversation. We've just been having it all the way through. This is this is an incredible thread because, in a sense, the artificial faith 
whatever religion is emerging around technology and artificial intelligence and all those things, in effect, is a, an arena much like that of the global south. You can have people who decide to embrace this kind of transhumanism, artificial intelligence, all these things. And it is about purity and power. It's about saving my gene pool, getting my people to be the richest people, making sure that when the earth blows up, I'm not here. You know, so it's about purity and power. And your friends are the ones who are going to be the safe ones. And so you you rescue them. You know, you put a boundary around them. We are the ones who are in control. Or you could be like the doctor sitting next to me at that dinner. And what that was, and I, I love that you just took that right to Tayhard, because I certainly wasn't thinking of it. But as soon as you said it, I knew exactly what you meant, is that you can actually have the same sort of body of information. Instead of being about purity and power, it becomes about the immediacy and the joy of discovery. It becomes about transforming this sort of cultural worlds in which we live. It becomes about finding who we are in a new world and being able to share and create community and invite others into the discovery. And that's two very different ways of approaching this same moment. One is the consolidation of power, you know, around this this idea of purified knowledge and, you know, the grasping of everything. The other is a spiritual journey, sort of like the monastic journey, but now in the world of research and technology. It's sort of like the idea of, you know, what, what was the old spiritual journey but purgation, you get rid of the stuff that, you know, is in the way, illumination that you begin to see in a deeper way, which is what science is always doing. It's always trying to understand things in a deeper way. Then you come to the point of union or this unitive knowledge where you begin to see what makes sense, like, you know, why things fit together, why this protein and, you know, this channel might actually work together in some way. And that discovery then becomes a cure, you know, and that, that's what, how, what does it mean to arrive at God? That's the whole thing. What is a life-giving path of transformation that can change the world? The other is destructive of a consolidation of power that fragments the world, that widens the gaps. I've never heard anyone explain science that way. I'm sure it's just because we haven't sat around and talked long enough. But um, it's also, that's the way of the historian. Oh, that's so interesting, you know, because, well, I was a scientist in my first life, you know, of my many lives. <laughs> uh, my third life, probably. My, maybe my third bicycle accident, I became a scientist. And I loved science for that reason. For me, it wasn't, it wasn't about how it was about discovery. And there was, there was nothing more thrilling, quite honestly, than being in a laboratory with, you know, instruments and, you know, and tools to to measure and to analyze. You don't know where you're going. You have some idea. It's called a hypothesis. But you don't know what the outcome is going to be until you actually run the experiment. And it's an unbelievable, actually, type of endeavor. And I, I truly feel with scientists when they're so engaged in their research, it's it's passionate. Science is a passionate endeavor. 
you can't be like just a robot, you know, like dispassionate and, you know, here's your, you know, pipette and so many millimeters of stuff. There's there's a deep involvement of the whole person. I, I once worked next to a guy who worked for 35 years on one aspect of a protein that was part of a channel. <laughs> and you go, oh my God, 35 years on that little like, you know, enzyme or whatever it was. And and that's what they are, you know, and it's like they're driven by it. In the same way we're driven by God, you know, or by or a sense of knowing, you you apply to see history. Same idea. We're passionate about knowing and that's spirituality, you know. And it's really fascinating because when you do find that that text or you're in the library and all of a sudden something clicks, what the historian is constantly doing is rereading the past in order to clear the decks, in order to say, you know, hey, our ancestors did this right, but wow, you know, we got ourselves in a mess here. And so historians are constantly going back over that ground and asking themselves the question, what could have been done different or better, even though this is actually what happened? And so when you find that kind of clearing of the decks, it does lead to the next place. And you ask yourself, well, what's a better story? You know, what is the, the story that will take us ahead? And so it's the rewriting of the tale that becomes that moment of just exquisite passion because you're taking stuff that has always existed and always been around, but nobody did paid attention to it. And you're drawing eyes to a different part of this, the story. And my dream is always that the different part you're drawing people's attention to is giving them a sense of wonder and justice and freeing and liberation so that people can participate more deeply in the work and presence of God in the world. Yeah, I love that description of being a historian. Uh, I think the same could be said for a scientist or even a theologian. And all that you're describing here really speaks to me of what Terod was trying to articulate in terms of contemplation. Actually, all that you're talking about here is what contemplation is for Teilhard. It's that passion of knowing and discovering and forming these new unities of insights. And so for him, contemplation is not just reflecting upon being itself. It is, it is discovering a new truth. This mind that's constantly reaching out and you know searching and then seeing where the patterns are and then connecting them in new ways, it forms this light. You know, there's a light-filledness there. And you you come to a new level of consciousness, awareness. And therefore, like you said, we can begin to understand things in a new way and then build, you know, a, the world that we're in now in a new way. And it's very exciting. You know, it's much better than just going to sit and, you know, on a pillow and just kind of think of being. <laughs> <laughs> I'm contemplating my existence. Uh, <laughs> I actually can't imagine anything more boring than that. <laughs> I'd rather just exist. <laughs> That's why I think, you know, the knowing process is so deeply part of, it's part of, definitely part of spirituality, but part of contemplation. So knowledge, the way we've commodified knowledge, you know, and made it into information. And it's like, we just want to consume information when knowing itself is such a deeply spiritual act, you know, 
And that's what makes scholarship so really beautiful. The project I'm currently working on is a project about public spirituality. And I've gotten fascinated by the whole problem we're having in the United States. It's not just in the United States. It's actually across Europe with the way that religion and society are changing. You know, we're looking back on history and all of a sudden we see things we don't like. And so what is happening is we're taking down monuments and statues and changing up all of our public space. And I was in Richmond, Virginia in the fall of 22, giving a series of lectures on history And the pastor of this very large, very liberal Baptist church said to me, have you driven down Monument Avenue lately? And Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, is the long boulevard that was developed after Reconstruction. So Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. And Monument Avenue is the physical embodiment of the memory of the Confederacy. So it was this beautiful boulevard with all these gardens and trees and these huge circles every so many miles or whatever. And in each circle, there was a gigantic statue to a figure of the Confederacy, a hero of the Confederacy. And the most prominent ones were to Jefferson Davis and to uh, Robert E. Lee. So when the pastor asked me, have you been down Monument Avenue lately? I knew exactly what he meant because they've been taking them all down. And so I said, no, I haven't driven down there recently, uh, but I'm going to before I leave uh, during this trip. And he said, oh, he says, it's amazing. He said, whenever I look down Monument Avenue now, all I see are empty altars everywhere. And that little phrase, empty altars everywhere, just captured my sort of literary and historical imagination. And in effect, you ask sort of what's going on with Christianity globally. In effect, right now, we're in a period of what I would call iconoclasm. And that is we're taking down the altars to so much of the past. Yep. And rightly so. So much of that has to be done. That work has to be done. That, that, that reinterrogation of where we have been on this journey and to just say, no, we can't, this is not what we want to valorize any longer. But iconoclasm only lasts for so long in the history of Christianity. And the next step is, well, what do you put up in its place? And so that's the piece that I've really been scouring spiritually is that who are the valorous uh, who have lived among us that can direct us in a different way? What are the stories we want to tell differently as we move forward into these spaces of technology and science and different kinds of organizations of capital and, and climate change? What are those stories that are going to shine in the, the coming iteration of our faith communities. And so it's been a really interesting project because in effect, the purgation 
has already begun as a social and a spiritual project. But very few people are yet really embracing the calling yes. of the recreation of the public space. And that's that's what I'm trying to explore, sort of pushing people forward in the timeline a bit. Yeah, that's really good. Really important. But, you know, I mean, I thought about this a little bit myself because while I agree, you know, I don't want these uh, symbols to, you know, the fact is we have moved beyond all that history of, uh, I mean, I had a class on racism last week and white privilege and it, it's heartbreaking, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet here we are, we're able to see ourselves in a new light. We're able to, you know, as speak of the human person within a new way. So I don't want to, I don't want symbols that represent division, separation, hatred either. And we do need to fight. So what you're pointing to is we're good at deconstructing everything. We know how to, yes, but we're not very good about reconstructing symbols. We're not very good on the creative side of things. It's like we know what we don't like, but we're not sure what we've what really animates or gets us going in the morning or gets us up in the morning. So we have a you know, Colonel Young spoke of a symbolic death that you know we have a symbolic death in the West, and it's true. Like the symbols don't really work anymore, and even the ones we have, we're like we don't like what they symbolize. So we like to take everything down, and now we have like flowers. You know, we have like, you know, like old flowers sometimes or just tree stumps, you know, and it's like we flatten out everything. Right? Yep. We flatten out everything. We have nothing to, to, to animate the soul. Like, so we're about, we're soul people. And what do we like best? To go beyond ourselves, right? The whole point about being human is that there's something there, you know, that's not here, that we always want to go beyond. That's why technology is so, you know, alluring. It's like the infinite cyberspace of the beyond. You can be whatever you want to be. Right. But, you know, historically, you know, culturally, we're like flatland, you know. And so now we're like zoomed out. We're teched out. Our minds are like baked out with Google. We're Googleites, you know, flatland, pancake, Googleites. And there's no imagination. There is no creativity. There's no new symbols. There's nothing to pull us up and move us forward into something new. You know, a new unity, a new wholeness. Something new is, you know, one thing about like like Christianity, something new is happening. Uh-huh. Even made that old, like an old God with, you know, old ideas and old, everything's old, old, old. When the old symbols come down, what goes up in their place? Next. Diana shares more of her experience scouring the historical landscape for a renewed spirit to approach the American paradox of liberty. And finally, Ilya asks Diana where is religion going and which of her books our listeners should read first. The idea of a flatland of symbolic universe we need to understand that we're, I mean, we're embodied creatures and we live in a creaturely world and we have to walk around in storied landscapes. And so if we, if we don't have those storied landscapes or they're storied landscapes that point us in the wrong directions, that's problematic. I, as I was saying, one of the really fun things has been sort of going through and sort of spiritually scouring just the world within my attention span here 
uh, as a historian and try to figure out, well, what do you put there? And I've begun to see just some amazing things that people are actually being creative about, like the African-American History Museum here in Washington, D.C., where I, where I live and where you live, too. I've, you might have seen this. There's a section of that museum and you go in and there's this giant statue of Thomas Jefferson. And the first time I saw it, I went, what the heck is he doing here? <laughs> isn't, isn't that part of the problem? You know, he's he's a slaveholder. I thought, you know, why is Thomas Jefferson standing in this in this space? And yet they haven't gotten rid of Jefferson and they haven't gotten rid of the most important part of Jefferson because behind him on the wall, there's the the Declaration of Independence is written. So there's the familiar landscape of Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence. But between the pair of them, there's this kind of jagged wall made out of bricks. And on each of the bricks, there's the name of someone whom Jefferson held in slavery. Wow. I know. That's powerful. And you look at it and you go, I get it. And and so it's not a, a ripping out of Jefferson or just saying the words on the wall are a hypocrisy. Right. But that there is something that stood between Jefferson and the full realization of that vision of equality and liberty. And that was enslavement and the people he owned. Oh. And so the whole part of that museum is called the paradox of liberty. Huh. Wow. And so there you get the idea of a storied public space with two familiar figures, the words and the author of the words, and yet the reintroduction of just one simple piece of art that represents the voices of the unheard vis-a-vis both the author and the words on the wall creates an entirely new possibility for observers and for those who want to write a different story, the next story, hopefully, of a truly spiritual republic, as it were. Yeah, a truly democratic. And yeah, there's so much I could talk to you about on this point of racism and and the liberation of personhood. You know, actually, I coined a term recently that this is not just flippant. Instead of racial justice, I want to call it facial justice. <laughs> I know it's not my Franciscan roots, but that that the human face you know what, Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas spoke of the face as the trace of transcendence. You know, it's a really beautiful idea that the human face is the face of God, you know, wow. in, in this flesh. And to eradicate the face of another is to eradicate God. And I've often wondered, you know, is racism, you know, kind of a counterpoint to an, an agnostic, an atheistic culture, a culture that basically while we're kind of religious, you know, from Monday through Saturday, we're basically agnostic or atheist. You know, we're just, God doesn't really factor into our daily NASDAQ quotes and, you know, monetized society. So there's something there, you know, that, that the face, to destroy the face is to destroy the root of divine love. going? I mean, you know, you've named a lot of the 
complexities of religion and culture, especially in the U.S., but now and globally, you're seeing some of the tensions. What do you see for the future of religion? Or do we have a future? Brian McLaren, you know, why stay Christian? Right. I think that religion always has a future. Yeah. This is an impulse that is as old as humankind itself. For some crazy reason, you look at a star and you go, thank you. Yeah, I think that that was something like that, or wow, you know, something like that was probably the very first ever impulse of of religion. And then whoever said those things to the stars wanted to somehow reduplicate that experience among the rest of their tribe or for their children. And so that begins to turn into liturgies and prayers and telling of the story communally that gets passed down. So in that sense, I am pretty sanguine about the future of religion. And I think that even what we're seeing in talking about transhumanism and and Elon Musk and AI and all these things, is that's also another evidence that there is some future for this kind of impulse. And the big question, of course, is what direction does that impulse take? And in fact, I think all the time about the the words in Deuteronomy, I lay before you two paths. There's a way of life and a way of death. And you all, Israelites, you get to choose. And uh, I don't think it's much different now. I think that there's a way of life and a way of death and that, that that's open in front of us. And we better choose well everything that I am about, that I write about, that I trust in, that I urge people towards, that I proclaim all of that is to try to press people toward a way of life, because I think that's Earth's only option. And if we choose a way of death, we have disastrous consequences awaiting us. It's time is short. I often wonder if death is actually one of the most critical factors that's governing our subconscious in this privatization, individualization take all, you know, let me gather as much as I can. There's something about that deep fear, existential fear of death. I was reading this article recently on the future of forever. It's on digital immortality. Download our brains. And and the author, Martine Roplop, says at one point, if we could live forever, she said, we might take better care of the earth because, you know, it'll be our home for a long, 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 long time. That's really interesting, isn't it? But the fact is we're going to die. So we want to kind of gather as much as we can for ourselves, you know, maybe create, maybe try to prolong death, you know, by getting enough wealth so we can get the best of medical care that we can buy the biggest houses and maybe get in a SpaceX, you know, (laughs) go to the moon if, you know, the earth blows itself up because we really don't want to die. So death being kind of the critical factor that's maybe inadvertently shaping a lot of our decisions. But I thought that was really interesting. If we were to live forever, would we devastate the earth? Because if we were to live forever, we would need to be, you know, at home in this in this planet earth. Well, I love great questions. And that's a great question to think about. <laughs> One would think that we would take better care of it. And, you know, I love the, the tradition in lots of... Uh, Native American communities where you think seven generations into the future, which I think is essentially a, a version of that, that in effect, you don't die 
because of all of the generations that come after you. That's so interesting, right? And yet they have such a great organic hair and, and deep connectedness to the earth. I do think we should focus a little bit more on death. There's <laughs> a ecological factor here. Not that we're killing, we are killing the earth, but for the, for the reason that we really fear, you know, fear to die. would you recommend to your our listeners which of your books should we read oh my very favorite book that i've ever written is a book called grounded uh, which was written in 2015 and it is a story about finding god in neighbor and nature and when i wrote grounded i got a call from a friend of mine who teaches out at claremont a person that i went to college with uh, phil clayton I know you know. <laughs> and uh, so Phil and I have known each other for decades. And he literally read Grounded. He called me up on the phone. He laughed. He said, Diane, I always knew you're a process theologian <laughs> and a panentheist to boot. And you're finally coming out of the closet. And I said, yes. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to get look that up, Grounded. So that's a wonderful book. And then the one that's over my shoulder there on the video, Freeing Jesus, is my most recent book. And it's what I call memoir theology. So it's taking the text of my own life and thinking about who Jesus is out of that experiential text. And it offers a model for how people can understand themselves to be theologians and to know that in our lives, we're actually creating theology all the time. Oh, I love that idea. And we call that vernacular theology. Oh, I love it. I didn't know that. I call it memoir theology. <laughs> vernacular theology works too. <laughs> <laughs> we have different terms for the same thing. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. That's great. And you're a terrific writer, really. So we're really grateful for your contributions to scholarship and your contributions to really to keeping Christianity as a, a vital source of life and spirit, you know, so. Thank uh -huh. you. This concludes our discussion with Diana Butler Bass. Be sure to listen to our next conversation with biologist Rupert Sheldrake. A special thanks to our partners at the Fetzer Institute. On behalf of our team at the Center for Christogenesis, I'm Robert Nicastro. Thanks for listening.